Amen. Well, good to have us all uh, gathered together again this morning. So we have uh, one of the Lord's most precious gifts given to us, and that would be His Word. Amen. His Word that never changes. It's inerrant, perfect, been preserved down through the ages of time, and certainly is that which keeps you and I, amen, where we need to be. And that's uh, especially important in today's world that we live in where emotions and things change on a regular basis, amen. Men's thoughts change, their ideas change, but God changeth not. His word changeth not. And so he's given this to us this morning as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to, as we will see, flow down this river through this glorious, most glorious portion of scripture, this inspired church history, as Howard has said. And as we often do, we preach verse by verse through the Bible expositorily. And so from last time we were together here in the book of Acts, we always like to kind of remind ourselves where we've been, amen? And then as we go along down through the flow of this glorious church history, we can understand and grasp where we're at. So as we, once again this morning, take up God's sacred word together here in the book of Acts, we recall that the Spirit of God had called Paul and led him to the city of Athens. And as he was waiting there in Athens for Silas and Timotheus to come on to him, you remember that when we were together last time, the Bible says that his spirit was stirred within him. And we looked at that. What does that mean, that Paul's spirit was stirred within him? Well, the Spirit of God in the child of God, when he saw, as the Bible tells us in the text before this, right before this, that Paul was stirred because he saw that the city was wholly given over to idols. And uh, this whole idea of being, if you will, wholly given over, it literally means it was utterly swamped with idols. And we would use a terminology today like from one street corner to the other and all in between. There was just idols everywhere. And so Paul was stirred in his spirit because of that and his inner man there. And he stood up then in the midst of Mars Hill and spoke to them about their superstitions. You remember that? He says, I see you're all very superstitious. And Paul says, I'm just going to speak to you here for a moment. The Spirit of God has stirred me to stand and to speak to you concerning your superstitions and also this altar that I saw, this altar of the unknown God. And so Paul stands up and he begins to preach unto them as every good preacher should as he's moved by the Spirit of God. And so in verse 23... Paul declares unto them that he knows this God personally, the one that is unknown to them. He knows him personally. And really, when you think about that, we, we looked at the arrogance and the pride of these, these people who, you know, all they did was sit around looking day after day for some new thing. And so they were pride-filled in their knowledge, allegedly, and all that they knew. And yet, here, here they have this inscription to an unknown God. So it's an irony of ironies when you think about that. Uh, in your mind. And brethren, it is certainly here where Paul begins to point these pagans to the one true God, to the God of holy writ, to the Lord God of scripture, amen, who, as we know, inhabits all of eternity. And again, as he speaks to them about the God of holy writ, he goes, as we're going to see, he takes them right back to the beginning. Again, God who inhabits eternity, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And so Paul begins, as he begins to preach to them, he uses this most amazing thing as he has them take a look at just creation around them. Amen. He uses this, if we can call this, amen, creation theology. Because, brethren, when you look at the order of things, when you look at how creation is created, I don't care who you are. You can, you can be the biggest reprobate in the world, and I know in their hearts they deny that there's a creator, but when you look, that's impossible to do that, to deny the great order that God has put in place. And so, again, this is where Paul begins. He doesn't go directly to the Old Testament scriptures, because they don't really know anything about the Old Testament scriptures, but he does go to the thing where God has revealed himself to every man in creation itself. And so as we look there together at verses 24 and 25, let's turn there together and let's read this together again as we begin the exegesis of this glorious portion of Scripture together. Look at verse 24. Again, Paul, previously in 23, he's declaring unto you, I know the God whom you don't know. And this is some of his characteristics. This is who he is. And so verse 24, the Bible says, God made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, 
and dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything. And brethren, again, let me just remind us here, okay? I don't want to be unkind or sound unkind, but God doesn't need you and he doesn't need me. God in, this, in the Trinity, before the world was ever created, they existed perfectly in, with one another. They existed perfectly in love, you know, in kind, and all of those perfect attributes, if you will, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Paul's telling them here, God doesn't need anything, nor does he need anybody, because he's perfect within himself. And we understand that, although... He was so glorious and good to us that he would create us, which is an amazing thing. And then not only that, that he would save sinners and then use us for his glory. That, that to me, is one of the greatest things that we see in Scripture. So Paul simply tells him here, he says, He dwelleth in not temples made with hands, neither is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life, breath, and all things. Paul begins, as I said here, in our text, by declaring that the one true God created everything, and yet he is distinct from his creation. And again, brethren, this is extremely important as we look at this, that he is the creator, but he is indeed distinct from that creation. He is, if you will, separate from that, and we must understand that. He tells them that God is much greater. God is much higher. God is much more holy. God is much more, put whatever adjective you want to put in there, he is much greater than any temple that men's hands could ever build. He does not, Paul says, the God that I know, the one that you don't know, but the one that I'm going to introduce you to, he is not worshipped. He is not made by any scheme of men's mind, any scheme of men's hands, none of it. It's a stunning thing, isn't it? How men will lower God down. When you have a high view of God, God is here, we are here, and everything else is below that. It's a stunning thing. And yet men have constantly tried, haven't they, to bring God down. It's amazing the number of times you see in Holy Scripture, God asked Israel, to whom will you liken me to? I am like no one. I am God. I am separate. I am holy. I am above all. And yet he's personally, and again, we have to keep this in mind, that Paul is going to bring into this thing that God is a very personal God. Because the Stoics, the philosophers, again, that we looked at earlier in the text, remember what they used to teach? They taught that God is up here somewhere. He's, he's away from us. He's not anywhere near us. And Paul's introducing them to the God of Holy Writ, who is indeed very personal and very, if you will, involved in his creation. Look at verse 29. Paul says, there's no device of men, there's no image, there's nothing that you can uh, build that would even come close comparing to the God of Holy Writ, the God who I'm introducing you to, who I'm preaching to you about. Look there at verse number 29. Look what it says. For as much then as we are in the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by the art of what? Men's device. So in other words, he again is declaring unto them, you've got all these images on every corner. There's an image on every street corner, in the middle of the street corner, in every building there's one there. And Paul is saying that this God, the God of Holy Writ, is far above anything that you can even begin to devise or understand. And that's God. That is the God of Holy Writ, brethren. And this is the one whom Paul is certainly there. In fact, Paul, being the astute preacher... He first guides them, as we have seen here, to the general revelation of God, that which is clearly seen in his creation. Again, we notice that. That's the first thing he starts out with is look out and see what you see. Do you see the trees? Do you see the grass? Do you see how everything works so intricately? It is not possible that a God who created such a thing is off at a distance somewhere. I remember one time a pastor friend of mine, I've told this before, he he didn't ask, this woman says, can I sing this song? And he didn't ask her, what song is it? I don't know why. When, oh, Wendy, she's good. But we're sitting there, and the lady gets up. And you remember a long time ago there was a song that God is watching you from a distance. Remember that? That was a popular song back in the, I'd say somewhere in the 90s. And it was a stunning thing to watch, to watch our pastor. I didn't know what he was going to do. He was fidgeting. You know, he was going like this. And he's, oh, my goodness, oh, my goodness, his legs. He was moving all over the place. Because here's this woman singing about God who is somewhere off over there when, in fact, he is not off over there somewhere. He is watching over every atom. He's watching over every grain of dust on the, gra on the, gra on the floor of the grain elevator over here. He's intimately 
personally up close and involved in everything that takes place. It's a stunning thing. In fact, look there, if you would, at verse 27. Look what Paul tells them. Look at verse 27. You think your false gods, they believed. These men believed. The Areopagus believed. Those who were here in Athens believed that God was impersonable. They taught that. The Stoic philosophers, you remember we looked at that, that God is off somewhere over here. Look what Paul says in verse 27. This God, the unknown God, the God of holy writ, is this kind of God. Look at verse 27. That they should seek the Lord if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from any one of us. Again, brethren, God is sovereign. He is control of all things. He is working all things out according to his glorious, perfect will. He's not watching us from a distance. He is watching over every atom that moves. In fact, he is over every atom that moves. It's an amazing, stunning thing. So we see here again God, that Paul here as he's preaching, he's saying, your God's impersonable. These gods that you're worshiping, these statues, all these idols, that's what they are. But this is the unknown God, the God I know personally, who personally knows me, who personally saved my wretched soul on the road to Damascus. That God, him, the only one true God. So again, these pagans knew nothing about the Hebrew scriptures. And yet, brethren, they are indeed, just like every preacher, every Christian. If you're a Christian here and you're street preaching or whatever you're doing, you're at work leading someone to the Lord. Your foundation is not your thoughts. Your foundation is not your understanding. Your foundation is always the holy scriptures that never change. The gospel that never changes. Because men's hearts have not changed. Amen. They're as wicked today as they were then. They're as wicked back in Genesis chapter 6. They are wicked. Men, by our natures, we are wicked. Even though that philosophy or that teaching, let me just say not philosophy, but that teaching is long gone in many churches. Many churches now, well, you're pretty good. Man is innately good. No, we're not. The Bible says that we are not innately good. That we are indeed born sinners evil, rebellious children against God. It's a stunning thing as you look at Scripture. But what Paul does here then, he takes them again back to the beginning, all the way, brethren, back to Genesis chapter 1, in fact, to the one true personal God and creator. Now, many times people go, what's, what's Pastor Mike going to give us an English lesson today? Today it's a science lesson. We're going to have a little science lesson from Scripture this morning, brethren. Amen? When you're defending the faith, when you're defending creation, when you're defending what you're looking at out here, all you have to do is go to Genesis chapter 1, the first verse. I want us to turn there this morning. I want you to see God's science lesson in the book of Genesis. And again, it's all over the place, but here especially, this is where Paul's foundation is at. When he's speaking of the God who created the heavens and the earth and all things that are, this is who he's talking about. He's talking here in Genesis chapter 1. And again, we see here, brethren, in the opening verse of Holy Scripture, the basics of science. Isn't that funny? If you look up the word science and you look up at what, what it's turned into, it's a stunning thing. Amen? You know, some of that stuff they used to you know, tell the truth about. There used to be some truthful things that they would tell. Now it's just conjecture, and, and they'll do anything to deny the God of Holy Writ. They will do anything to deny that he indeed, as we're going to see here, used his own glorious science, if you will, liberals. Your own glorious science, God did it in the first verse of Genesis. I want you to see the basics of science in the opening portions of this scripture. Look at verse Number one, one of the, one of the first things, uh, one of the first elements of science is time. Time. There's five. Time, there's force, energy, space, and matter, all of it right here in verse number one. It's a stunning thing when you understand that. Look there, if you would. Time. In the beginning. That's time. That's God beginning creation. That's him starting humankind, beginning, although he's eternal, but God himself is here telling us the beginning of time. God's eternal. We are not. Time is not. Here he has, in the beginning, the Bible says, the basics of science. We need time. Second of all, we need a force. Look there, if you would, at the next word. In the beginning, time, God. 
God is the force. God of Holy Scripture is the one who indeed, what does the Scripture say? I want you to see this. He is the force by which what we look at, we see. Look there, if you would, just at verse number 3, the first three words. And God said. That's it. That's the force. That is God speaking into existence something out of nothing. This is God. This is science. This is what they always want to go to. So we go here to the science, the, the uh, if you will, the inspired science book. Look at verse 6. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And God said. Look at verse 9. And God said. Look at verse 11. And God said. Look at verse 14. And God said. He is indeed the force that is simply speaking what we see into existence. It is a most glorious thing, brethren. This is the God that Paul is pointing them to. He who spoke these things, when you look at creation, heaven and earth, it is this God, the God of holy scripture. Well, you need energy, and created that word, bara, means to bring into existence out of nothing, which is exactly what the Bible teaches. You need a little space, so you look there, there's heaven, and you need a little matter, that's earth. So all five, of the basic scientific matters are right there in verse number one. A most stunning thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There you go. This is the one that, that Paul is pointing these pagans who are worshiping creation, who are worshiping their idols to, this unknown God. I know him personally. He personally saved my soul. This is the one. Let's just look at a couple of verses. Look at Psalms 19, just a couple of them. Again, you can't deny the order. You can't deny creation. You can't do it. You can say it with your mouth. You can say it with your lips. But every atheist in their heart knows this stuff didn't happen by just a big explosion. And here we have this order. And here we have the sun and the moon and all these things that are just absolutely under sovereign God's control as he is watching over every one of them, keeping them all, brethren, in perfect order. All the planets, the sun, you know, we were talking about the sun, we were talking about the moon with our kids the other night, talking about the orbit of the earth. Brother, I don't want to turn this into a science thing, but I could real easily, real quickly. The sun is what? What is the, or the, the, the earth is what planet from the sun? It's the third, let's just do a little, it's the third planet from the sun in its orbit, right? So it orbits around, and it is exactly, perfectly, stays in its perfect order, in its perfect orbit, every day, every week, every year, until God says, I'm pulling the plug. But it stays there. And you know what? If it moves a degree closer or a degree farther away out of its orbit, the earth is over. It's finished. That is not an accident. That is not explosion. That is divine creation by God himself, who spoke it into existence and who eternally holds it all together. <laughs> Brother. This is the God Paul is pointing them to. It's an amazing thing. Look at Psalms 19. We were looking out the window the other morning, Wendy and I, and I quoted this verse to her. Look at this glorious creation. Out on Moonstone Lane, looking out the back window of our house, and the sky was lit up gloriously as the sun came up. Just a stunning thing. Beautiful, just glorious. And I looked at Wendy and I said, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. There's no denying it. You can't look at it and say, oh, that was an accident. All of this order came from all this chaos. It's nonsense. Total nonsense. Total, if you will, just a rejection of God. In fact, he is so intricately involved in his creation I want you to see what he does. You know, <laughs> we're orbiting at a very fast pace. We are also rotating on an axis at a very fast pace. And I want you to see the intricacies of God. Again, this is the God he's pointing them to. He's using creation. Look at creation. Look at, uh, if you will, Isaiah chapter 40. The great Christ preacher, the Old Testament evangelical preacher, preaches more about Christ than any other Old Testament prophet did. But I want you to see the intricacies here of what God did. Look there, if you would, at verse number 12. Isaiah chapter 40. Look at verse number 12. God 
who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out the heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure. Do you see what God did? When he spoke this thing into existence, he measured it perfectly. He measured it and meted it out exactly as it needed to be. Because if it wasn't, you realize that we would be, as we're, as we're whirling around, you would be, it's like a tire out of balance. You ever drove a car with a tire out of balance? You'd be shaking like this. But God perfectly weighted and meted it out perfectly as we're enjoying his glorious gift. Look what it says. And comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord? Who, or being his counselor, hath taught him? God. This is the one. Now, brothers, again, over and over again, we can... We can go over and over in Scripture and Scripture. Romans chapter 1, right? God said that what is clearly seen of him, he put in them. And he's talking about when you look at the body, brothers and sisters, again, the intricacies of the body are stunning. Ask the doctors. Even atheist doctors will admit the eye and those things that God created by simply speaking it is a stunning creation. We can't even mimic a hand. Try and make a hand. We look like we're, you know, like from, you know, back in the second century. God just spoke it, created it from the dust. An amazing, glorious thing. In fact, I like what John MacArthur said. He said this. The best starting point for evangelizing pagans who have, with no knowledge of the scriptures is to explain the power and person behind the creation. Satan's invention of evolution cuts off that path of reason that leads to God. And brethren, you say, oh, yeah, no, that's how dangerous that stuff is. Because any sort of thought like that, even you guys have heard of theistic evolution, right? Theistic evolution, where they believe that God's just, he, he created it, and then he stood back and just stayed out of it, and he just looked at it and just looked at it. Well, the problem with that is, brother, you have a huge theological problem, huge theological problem with evolution. You know why? What does evolution teach? Well, we came from, came from prim, some primordial slime, and we died, and then we got better, and we're getting better, and we're getting better, and we're getting better. Brother, and listen, you have a theological problem. I ask you this morning, when does the Bible say death came? Did death come as we were evolving out of slime pits and dying and getting better and better? No, actually, the Bible says what? That death came when what? Who sinned? Adam sinned. In fact, Adam's going to get pointed at in our text. Adam sinned. No, death didn't come till Adam sinned. If you believe in evolution, you have a serious theological problem. Serious. And you're a demon for believing it anyway. Not trusting in what God says in his word. It's a stunning thing. No, brethren, think it through. Think it through biblically. And say, when did death come? It wasn't after we all evolved and Adam showed up. No, there was no death till Adam sinned. That was in the beginning. That's what sent all of you and I. That's what plunged you and I into the situation we are in today. Living here in this earth. It's a stunning an amazing thing. It really, really is. Now look what else we see in our text there. So Paul goes first to creation, and then look what he does. Again, keeping in mind that he's showing them and teaching them that this unknown God that they don't know, he knows, and it is a, again, God who is very personal. He's very much involved in all things. And now he goes to them. Not only is God integrally involved in the creating of the earth and the heavens, but he's integrally involved in creating who? All men. All men. It's an amazing thing. Look what Paul does here. Look at Acts chapter 17. Look at verses 25 and 26. Not only is God the creator of the heavens and the earth, and I want to say this because I'll say it again because I like to say it. The woke demonic dimwit should read this scripture. That's right, you heard me. The woke demonic dimwits should read this. Because that's what they are. They're evil, satanic, devil-worshipping, evil dimwits. You realize there's one race. You realize that. Right? There's one race, many colors. Not many races, there's one. We all came from one. Look at verses 25 and 26. Paul lays that out there for him. Look at 25. 
Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. He's covering every base. This is the God of Scripture who does this. And then he says this, And hath made of one blood all nations of men. You understand what he's saying there. He is referring and referencing Adam. He's referring and referencing back to Genesis again, back to Genesis chapter 2, where we're going to look at this. He again is, is looking at the God of Scripture, and he's going back to the very beginning. God, who is the Omega, the Alpha and the Omega, he was here before. He'll be here long after. He's the beginning and the end. And he again points them to this God, to that God, the God of Holy Scripture. It is an amazing thing. He does indeed here in 25 and 26, as I finish that, and hath made of one blood all nations and of men to, for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Oh, brother, we could preach out that verse for two hours. It's a stunning thing that Paul is revealing here to these men. He draws their attention to the biblical truth that our common humanity has a single source. That's what I'm saying. There's one race. That's it. Many colors, one race. It's one source. Who's the source? It is the unknown God that you don't know, but I know. It is that God. God who created every man, every nation, all of them that are populating the world. It's a stunning thing. Adam is who he's referring to. It's an amazing thing. And we see there, too, by his loving, sovereign decrees, he marked out, he appointed where every one of us will live. Think of that. Think of the intricacies of that, brother. <laughs> you think God is watching from a distance? He is not. He has even marked out where you live. He's marked out where you exist. He's marked out the time you exist, the era in which you exist. To me, brother, I don't know about you, but that's very comforting. Amen? It's comforting to know that God is the one who is ordaining and watching over and sovereignly allowing us to live during this glorious time of life. Even, brethren, during what appears to be the demise of America as we know it. But God sovereignly has us here. He has us living in Bismarck, North Dakota. And I see some other faces. We have, he has us living where we live for a glorious purpose of his. And that is always what? To preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. To live as light in a dark place. This is God's glorious purpose in all of this. He marks those boundaries. Look at Genesis chapter 2. Let's just look there quickly. I want you to see this together. Genesis chapter 2. This is where Paul again is referencing back to. And of course, all of this ends in God's glorious gospel. All of it ends there. You've got to have God who is first, God who is eternal. You've got to have Adam because all men fell in Adam. And then there's the remedy that God himself provided, which is who? The Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. You see that? You see how that works? This is Paul's preaching. This is what he always did. This is what he always does. Look at Genesis chapter 2 again here. And this is important because we're going to see Paul quote this. <laughs> We're going to see Paul quote. He quotes this verse in Acts right here in our text. But he's referencing back. Look here at Acts chapter 2, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse number 7. We all know this verse. And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. God took the dust and just simply blew into the nostrils of man as he created him. He became a living soul. Well, who was the man? Who was he? Well, I'm glad you asked. Just for clarification, look at verse 19. Adam is spoken of six times here. It's Adam. Of course, we know this. Look at verse 19. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. Whatsoever Adam called the living creature, that was the name thereof. And by the way, let me just say this. We are not evolving and getting smarter. We're getting dumber. By a long shot, brethren. We are being dumbed down so low, it's not even funny. Adam was a brilliant creation of God. He named every animal, every one of them. When you drive by and look at the cow, that's a cow. You know who called it that? Adam. We ain't smart enough. Ain't's not a word. 
We are not smart enough. We are, in fact, because of our sinful natures, we're going down fast. It's a stunning thing. Look at this, though. And whatever Adam called the ever-living creature, that was the name thereof. Verse 20, and Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found any uh, help meet for him. Verse 21, and the Lord God caused a, great, a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed the flesh instead thereof. Look at verse 23, and Adam said, after he woke up, you know, I've preached this in a wedding before, Adam wakes up. And he sees what God has done. Just think, Miss Bonnie, this is Elmer. This is what Elmer did right here. He woke up. Jeaner, too. I know, I know Jeaner did. I was, well, I did there. I was at your wedding. I, I saw it. He wakes up. And literally the terminology that's used here is he sees this woman and he just goes, wow, what has God created? Look at this glorious thing that God has created, this beautiful woman. Stunning thing, isn't it? Now, husbands, I'm speaking for all of you. We've all said that, amen? You can just say amen. Yes, we have. This is what it is. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So again, we see the man in Genesis chapter 2, who Paul is referring to is indeed Adam. And it's very important because in 1 Corinthians 15, let's just flip there. Again, Adam. Adam is the center of... Paul's preaching at this point. Look at, uh, if you will, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul continues with this teaching again, and there's a reason why he did it. There's a reason why. You know, that's the thing about Paul, as we're going to see. He quotes their poets. He knows their history. A good, studious, as I've said before, preacher will have a general knowledge of what they are doing. You will have the right knowledge of Scripture and of God. But look, if someone comes up and asks you something about their religion, okay, and you can't know them all, but you should have a general idea of some of them. If a Mormon comes up to you and says some goofy thing to you and you, you blabber on and you don't have a good, solid, biblical response, shame on us. Shame on us for not. But Paul, in his wisdom, quotes their, he quotes their poets. He knows those pagans that are running around there. But there's a reason. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's taking them right to this place. They thought they were pretty wise. They thought they were pretty holy. They thought they were pretty good in their Epicurean philosophies and their Stoic philosophies and all their philosophers. Paul is just taking them right down the gospel road. It's a stunning thing to behold, as he always did. Look there, if you would, at verse uh, 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 45. And so it is written. Brethren, where is it written? <laughs> well, Genesis 2, we just read it. <laughs> okay, that's what, that's what Paul's quoting. He, he's writing this. It's written there. And so it is written. The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first, which was spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. Verse 47, the first man is of the earth, the earthly, the second man is of the Lord from heaven. And again, we see this again, laying this out there. All of us, brother, all of us are represented by our head, and that is Adam himself. We are born in Adam. We are born sinners. We are born like him until that glorious day when God, amen, comes along, and he does. What only God can do is we're going to see when he saves a man or a woman or a child and he regenerates you, the Spirit of God, he makes you a new creature and he creates you in the image of who? In the image of Christ. Here we see this. Paul is laying this out there. You think you're smart. You think you're very philosophical. You think you're all of these things and yet here we have God who is much greater, much higher, much more glorious than any, any of us could even begin to imagine. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we know that verse well. Well, okay, let's just read it together. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 12. We can quote it, but look at here. This is where he's going, brethren. Chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, by, and death by sin, 
And so death passed upon all men, for all have what? Sin. So this is where he's taking them. We're born in Adam. All of us have sinned. And he's taking them, as I said, right down the gospel trail, right down the gospel path, if you will. Look back there at Acts chapter 17. Look at verse number 27, if you would there. Look what he does. He gives them some commands, which I think is quite interesting. We'll spend a couple minutes looking at that this morning as well. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse number 27. He speaks of God's creation. He speaks of God who made all men. And then he says this. Because of that, he gives them this command. That they should seek the Lord. If happily they might feel after him and find him, though he is not far from every one of us. (laughs) What an amazing statement that Paul makes here in verse number 27. Again, because we have all sinned, like our common father Adam, we're all in him, amen, our ancestor Adam. All of us, Paul said, should seek the Lord in whom saving grace is found alone. He tells them to stop groping around. That terminology that's used there is a quite an, an, an illustrious thing, an enlightening thing as we understand what Paul says. He says, feeling after him, which denotes one who is blind using their hands to feel along the way. Have you seen that before? This is exactly what he's saying. These men are in steeped in deep darkness, and Paul says... You, you've got to stop groping around like you're in the darkness here. In fact, we see it because of their idols. That's what they're groping after. This is what they're doing. They were groping for the one true God by creating images of their own unregenerate imaginations. This is what they're doing. They're feeling along. In fact, Isaiah has something to say about that. Turn with me if you would. This is a good picture of what Paul is saying to them. Look at Isaiah again. We'll spend a little time here in Isaiah Paul says we're to seek the Lord, amen, we're to seek the Lord. Look at Isaiah 59, look at this, just a glorious, well, it is the definition, the description of what Paul is saying here. Look there if you would, look at verse number 8, Isaiah 59, look at verse number 8. The Bible says, the way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. Therefore is judgment far from us, neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold, obscurity, for brightness. But we walk in what? Darkness. Look at the next portion of that verse. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as it is in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. This is exactly what Paul is saying to them. You're searching, you're groping along the wall, you're in complete darkness, you're in rebellious against God, and you're doing that. And we see this lived out in you making these idols and bowing down to these idols. From one street corner to the other. And again, Paul just takes them there most amazingly. Now that word seek, there's many times in the Bible where that word seek is used, but this one's different. This one has, there's several meanings to the word seek, but this one means to diligently, earnestly, and tenaciously search for something, sparing no effort, for for the sought-after object is of the utmost value. So again here, this word seek, Paul commands them to seek. Seek the Lord. He's not far from us, but you're groping around in the darkness. But seek him. In fact, if you back up in Isaiah 55... Look here again, this great preacher that he was. Look at verse, verses 6 and 7. The Bible says here is, is the gospel, really, uh, the, the invitation is given and offered freely. Look at Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come by, ye buy and eat. Yea, come by and wine and milk without money and without price. It's free. Jump down there, if you would, to verse number 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. This, again, is another command. Have you noticed, brethren, that there's a lot of commands going on here. There's a lot of things that are taking place that that God commands men to do that they cannot do. Do you understand? In their natural, unregenerate state, do you understand this? He's telling them to seek the Lord. Why are they going to seek the Lord? Well, we're going to define that. But look what he says. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. 
and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Here again, they're commanded by God to seek him. Seek after God. Seek the Lord. In fact, let's look at just a couple of passages here. There are many, but I want you to grasp and get a hold of the importance of what Paul is telling them to do. This isn't just, you know, lifting the cup, looking for something, trying to feel, oh, well, it might be over there. No, this is diligently searching, diligently going after it, searching diligently. Look at Luke 15. We see this here in this parable, Luke chapter 15. And again, there's so many, brethren, but we'll just look at a couple of them here. And you remember, I preached through these parables. These three parables are all linked together. They all have something in common, three things in common, actually, four things in common, actually. As you look at these parables, there's, there's rejoicing, there's something that's lost, there's something that's found, and there's, it's, it's a stunning thing. But all these parables, the parable of the lost sheep, I want us to look at the parable of the lost silver. Again, all connected through these glorious things. A rejoicing, something's lost and something's found. Look at verse 8. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house? And seek diligently till she find it. This is the word that Paul is commanding these who are groping along the wall to do. Seek diligently the Lord. This is what you should be doing. Look at verse 9. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice. There it is. Again, all of them connected with rejoice with me, for I have found there. That's connected to all three of the parables, the peace which I lost. And so we see here again, there's diligently seeking. This is what Paul is telling them to do. Now, it really comes out in the Lord who seeks. Look at Luke 19. Again, he's commanding us to, but look at here what it really, this, this definition is really brought to bear here perfectly as we look here at the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse, uh, Luke 19, look at verse number 7. Again, Zacchaeus, we're familiar with this portion of Scripture. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, that he has gone to be with the guest, with a man that is a sinner. Oh, yeah, he did. Verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said to him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is the son of Abraham. Verse 10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. This is the idea. This is the diligently seeking perfectly as Jesus diligently sought out his sheep, his lost sheep, which we're going to find out. We have some here in our text. It's quite an amazing thing. Now, they're commanded to seek. How can one who's dead in their sins, dead in their trespasses, an enemy of God, one who hates God by nature, how can one seek? Well, I'm glad you asked. The only way one can seek, brethren, is first of all by the supernatural working of God. First of all, the drawing of God. That's the first thing. You can seek God. You will seek God diligently like he's being told here only when the Father is drawing you. You will seek God only when the Spirit of God has regenerated you. You will seek God only when... Your eyes are opened by the Spirit of God and you look up and you see the Lord Jesus Christ for who He is. He is the Savior of the world. That's when men seek. That's how you seek. Otherwise, you know what you seek? You seek what these men were seeking. Groping along the wall, trying to put God up as some kind of an idol. No, it isn't until the work of God begins that one will seek diligently the things of God. Otherwise, you will follow your idol everywhere. You will grow up in the darkness. You will grow up spiritually all along. It's a stunning thing, a miracle. Again, a miraculous work of God that only he can do. This is what Paul is pointing him to. It's God, him, he, he's the one. He, God himself. It's an amazing thing when you consider this. The drawing of the Father. The miraculous regeneration of the Spirit of God. Changing your heart and your mind by the Holy Ghost. It's a stunning thing that one would seek then and see the Son for who he is, the one who died in your place. Now looking back at Acts chapter 17, look what Paul, he continues here. He's laying this glorious gospel, I hate to keep saying that, but that's what he's doing. He's funneling it 
down to the, if you will, down to the nub, right down to the, here's the, here's where, if you could say it, right, this is where the foundation lies. This is where it is. It's a glorious thing. Paul never changed. His preaching never changed. In every circumstance, it never changed. He understood who they were. He went at it from a, from a, not necessarily, well, a different angle, you would say. He used for the Jews the Old Testament scriptures immediately, not here. He went to the creation. He went to these other things, and then he points them here to the Lord Jesus Christ soon here. Look what Paul says there. Look at verse 28. God's not far from every one of us. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. Again, God's sovereign control over everything we are. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead, and again, here he is. Now he's going to draw them to repentance, brethren. <laughs> Repent. Well, we'll talk about that. Repenting, brethren. You, you cannot say for one to be saved, okay? You don't find it in the Bible anywhere. I know that Baptists like to say it, okay? You cannot repent of all your sins to be saved. Do you understand that? You understand that, don't you? You can't repent of all your sins and be saved. You know why? Because you don't know what your sins are. You don't have any idea what they are. You might know something you did wrong, the sin of what? Transgression. But you know you know nothing about the sins of omission. You have no idea what you should have did and you didn't do. You can't repent of all your sins to be saved. But you can repent, like God is calling them to here, to change your mind. And change your understanding of who God is. And this is what he's doing. He's going to call them to repentance. Not so they repent of all their sins. God will do that after he saves you. And you're walking with him. He'll say, hey, there's a sin you, you can't. We call that what? Progressive sanctification. Hey, Mike, that thing that you think is okay now in your life? No, it's not. And he'll take it away. You can't repent of all your sins and be saved. That's not possible. But it is possible, as Paul is saying here, for you to repent, for you to think differently about who God is and about what God has done. That's saving repentance. That's what it is. And by the way, over and over and over and over again, these churches, I thought, oh, there's no repentance. You don't need it. Yes, you do. It is central to saving grace. It is essential that one, as the Spirit of God transforms them, as, well, as he, if you will, as, he draw, as the Father draws them, and they are regenerated, your thinking about who God is will change. Yes, it will. It's a gift of God. He's telling him, you ought not to think this way, that the Godhead is like on the gold or silver or stone, graven by the art of man's device. Look at verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. We're going to look at that. You think God takes sin lightly? That's not at all what this is saying. But now, listen, commandeth all men everywhere to what? To repent. Man, here we go again. Here's another command by Paul. In fact, he commands them, the Bible says. He commands them that they need to repent. So he tells them to seek God. He tells them that they must repent. And again, only when God is doing the glorious work in a man's heart, when he's drawing him, when he's being regenerated, when he sees Christ for who he is, can one truly repent. That's why we seek. That's why we repent. Because God is doing, he is what? He is the first great cause. He really is. It's a stunning thing when you understand that. Paul here makes his concluding remarks about idolatry. He's finishing up with them. We've been talking about it now. I've been bringing this out. I've been showing you the God of Holy Writ. He brings his concluding remarks here about idolatry to them. Since we are God's offspring, we should not think, as I said, that, God, that the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are like gold, silver, or stone. And he commands them here again to repent, to change their minds, to change their attitudes concerning who the one true God is by turning to his glorious gospel. See, you don't turn from nothing into nothing, Right? You turn from something to something. That's repentance. That is a turning of the mind, a changing of the mind, a changing of the understanding. What, is God going to have you repent? Turn from this into nothing? No, you turn from the, the darkness to what? To the glorious gospel of Christ. Your mind changes, your attitude, your heart changes because God has done a work there. 
It's an amazing thing. As I said, just as the command to seek, so too is the command to repent, only accomplished by the drawing of the Father, the miraculous regeneration of the Holy Ghost. Paul tells them here that the days of groping in spiritual darkness and ignorance are over. The day of repentance is at hand, and it's here, and the time of judgment is indeed coming. It's, a, it's an amazing, stunning thing here. You always have the bad news with the good news. <laughs> Amen? You can't have good news without bad news. Paul is saying here that, look, that ignorance, this time of ignorance that God winked at, and we're going to look at that quickly, those days are gone. It's all over. The time of repentance is at hand. Isn't that what we should preach, brethren? Shouldn't we be preaching to the lost world that, amen, the judgment of God is coming? Because it is. Men should fear God, not men. Men should fear the judgment of God. In fact, look at Acts chapter 14. Look back here quickly just as we, let's see here, what do I got left? Yeah, we'll finish this up. Look at Acts chapter 14. I want you to again notice Paul as he's preaching about God winking at God, if you will, in his long suffering, allowing this stuff to go on. Think of the long suffering of God, brethren. This is really what Paul is saying to them. God has been long suffering. God has been long suffering with you, just like he was long suffering with me. And look what Paul tells him here in Acts 14. Look what he says, verse 15. Again, we've we looked at this, but I want to just bring to your remembrance. And saying, sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you. And preach unto you that ye should turn. <laughs> oh, I don't know. There's repentance from these vanities unto the living God. There's a turning to and from. Which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. There's Paul's message again, <laughs> preaching to them. But look what he says, verse 16. Who in times past... Suffered all nations to walk, what? In their own ways. Do you see that there? Paul is now saying to these pagans, those days are over. The time of repentance is at hand. Judgment is coming. Amen? In those days, God being long-suffering are going to be coming to a screeching halt. This is what he's saying unto them. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, turn there with me if you're going to, this same, this same theme is throughout Paul's writings, throughout his preaching. The time to repent is at hand, for the judgment of God is at hand. Look again here how Paul describes God's long-suffering. And you have to keep in mind here, brethren, again, the central focus of all of this is the cross. All of it is the cross. It's all centered on the cross. Times in the past come forward to the cross. Times, uh, uh, times in the future will go back to the cross, all centered on the cross. This is what Paul tells them here in Romans. This is what he says. Listen to what he says. Again, the central theme is the cross, where Paul is going to be taking them in the next glorious verse that we look at quickly. Look there, if you would, 23. Romans chapter 3, look at verse 23. You know, again, we all know this verse. We can quote it. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There it is again. All of us are sinners. All of us. But look what he says. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. There it is again. <laughs> God again. And if you go a little farther in verse 30, and I'm trying to get this all kind of in, I want you to see the language in verse 30. Again, in the past, it goes forward to the cross. In the future, it goes back to the cross, which is what he says in verse 30. All sin, all forgiveness, all of it is based on the cross of Christ. Look at verse 30. Seeing, now again, in the past, God's forbearance let this go. In other words, it piled up. The sins piled up until the cross Look into, listen to the language. Seeing it is one God, which shall justify the circumcision by faith. Brethren, in the Old Testament, when the Jews were seeing Christ, or were being preached about to Christ, did they go through the blood? Were they, were they through the cross yet? 
They were not. So by faith, they were seeing it by faith. They were saved by faith, seeing what God was going to do in the future with Christ. It's the cross that's coming. And then look what he says. That was the circumcision. Those were the Jews that were leading up to the cross by faith, which shall be justified, shall justify the circumcision by faith. Listen. And the uncircumcision, what? Through faith. By faith, through faith. We're saved through faith. We're on this side of the cross. We've gone through it. All of it centers back to the cross of Christ. All of it. Forgiveness, all of it is there. In fact, the Athenians, as we, if you will, close up here quickly, the Athenian is acknowledged in the inscription on their altar that they are ignorant of God. Paul declares here that such ignorance is indeed culpable. Your ignorance does not let you go. Your ignorance does not allow you to get into heaven because you did not know. Because what God has made of himself and shown of himself is clearly seen in creation. It's clearly seen in you and your intricate design. And it's seen here in holy scripture. Men are without what, brethren? We can quote it. We are without excuse. Because God has made it clear to each and every man. Now, look back there. We'll finish this up quickly. As he brings it to a close, as he brings this portion of Scripture to a close, he says this. Look at verse 31. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. There it is. There for the first time. Do you guys realize through all of this message, Paul does not mention Jesus' name, not once. This is actually the first time that he's even referenced the Lord Jesus and his resurrection. You see that? He's preaching to them, and he finally gets them to this place, and he says, God has guaranteed, he has assured it, that judgment is coming based on who? On the righteousness of this man. He doesn't even use his name. He just says this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom I am preaching unto you. First reference, first time he mentions it to them. It's quite an amazing thing. Paul warns the Areopagus that his sermon is not just idle philosophical chatter. It is indeed a most serious matter to those who are hearing, even this morning, to those who are hearing, those who are continuing to reject the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. It is a most serious matter concerning your soul, concerning where you will spend eternity. If you've rejected Christ and you continue to reject him, amen, until that glorious work of God, I understand it's his timing is perfect. God has assuredly set a day, he says, when he will judge the world in righteousness by Christ. So the question becomes, where did Paul get this from? Why would he quote this? I'm glad you asked. Again, he goes right back, brethren, to the Old Testament. Let me look, let's look at that quickly and we'll finish up. Look at Psalms 96. He's quoting scripture to them now. Again, look at Psalms chapter 96. This is where Paul gets it from. Again, his foundation is always the scripture. His preaching is always based upon the truth of scripture. Look at Psalms 96. Look at verse number 11. Psalms 96. Look at verse number 11. Again, brethren, we should never bring our own thoughts, our own understandings. We should always glean the things that we say outside of scripture from scripture, which Paul does. This is what he's been doing the whole time. Now look there if you would. Psalms 96. Look at verse number 11. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea roar in the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful, and all that is therein, then shall all the trees of the wood or the forest rejoice before the Lord, for he cometh, for he cometh to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. So Paul's quoting to them again. The Old Testament scriptures, the power of God and the word of God, this is what he does. He never deviates from it. Now let us close, because I want you to see again here, the miraculous working of God. As the gospel does what it always does, the gospel always separates. It always does. You preach the gospel, and it goes out, the spirit of God sends it out, and it does what he sends it to do. And it always separates. In this particular case, 
it separates into three categories, and I want you to see this. Let's close together with our closing verses 32, 33, and 34. Acts 17, look at verses 33, or 32, 33, and 34. Here we go. Oops, not, no, not, well, let me get to Acts 17. There we go. All right. Look at verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, look at the separation. Some mocked. That's what it does. They mocked him for preaching the resurrection of the dead, which is what saves a man's soul when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. The Bible says here that some of them mocked. They sneered at that teaching. Look at that. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Well, others yearned, it appears, to hear more about this resurrection. So we have those who mocked. We have those who sneered. We have those who possibly the Spirit of God may be drawing and working on. We want to hear more about this Jesus, about this man who resurrected from the dead. But then there are always these. This category that we've seen over and over again in scripture look what it says so paul departed among them so paul departed from among them howbeit certain men clave unto him and what believed among the witches dionysius the areopagite and the woman named damaris and others with them so what did we have, brethren? Paul spends all this time preaching, and he's preaching away, using creation, using your own self, using, again, now here, the gospel itself. And when they hear it, some mocked and sneered. Some said, hey, maybe we want to hear that some more. But then there's always God's, what? His elect lost sheep who were there in the Areopagus. In the Areopagus. He had sheep right there. He had a woman there. He had maybe a few others. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there were some who believed and were saved. It's an amazing thing, brother. Just again, we see this pattern of Paul continuing. I've got to finish. Paul continuing. God's elect that were here were plucked right out of the world. Right out of it. By the drawing of the Father, the miraculous regeneration of the Holy Ghost, Thereby believing, they were able to believe on the Son who was indeed uplifted on their behalf. It's an amazing thing to see the gospel work. It's an amazing thing to see how God does it. And it is truly an amazing thing to understand. Let's pray together. Father, we again rejoice in your fruit. We rejoice in how you used Paul to go into a place, a city, that was wholly given over to idolatry. Men who were bowing the knee to idol after idol after idol. In fact, even as you had ordained for Paul to see the altar of the unknown God, that he, as he's led by the Spirit of God, would preach unto them as he led them in the end, to the glorious gospel. Father, we thank you for that example. We thank you again as it never changes. Men are where they are, and you have ordained them to be there for, again, your glorious purpose, that we would preach the gospel to those around us. Whether we live in Bismarck or Mandan or Fargo or wherever it is, in Italy for that matter, you have so ordained it to be that they, too, will preach the gospel to the lost and dying world. And Father, Lord willing, next week as we go into chapter 18, we will again see as you send Paul into another city, he's threatened, and you miraculously intervene and Tell him, and you say to him, you don't say, hey, Paul, you have many people here. You say unto Paul, you keep preaching, for I have much people here. Again, we see the fruits of God as, he, as you are working them out. And Father, we pray this morning that through the word that was preached today, that your people were edified in it. 
that you were lifted up, that you were glorified in it. And Father, that uh, the lost sheep, those who are still lost, steeped in their sin, may become convicted by it. They might be drawn by you, that the Spirit of God might regenerate their heart and mind, that they might seek after God, that they might repent, that they might indeed look upon the Savior who is lifted up, who shed his blood, his lifeblood on their behalf, and they might believe. So, Father, we pray for them. And, Lord, now as we gather around the Lord's table, we are again reminded, aren't we, of this very thing, that you did what no man could ever do. You paid a price that no man could ever pay. Took our place. You got what we deserved, and we got the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. What an amazing exchange. Father, we thank you again, and we praise your name, and we pray all these things in your Son's name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.